the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering in Portland, Pedro Bartez producing and engineering in Seattle. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to review whether President, former President Donald Trump has immunity from prosecution in the special counsel's federal election interference case, an election year dispute that will have blockbuster legal and political implications for the nations and certainly for the candidate. Well, the justices have fast-tracked the appeal and will hear oral arguments in late April with a ruling on the merits expected in late June. Trump's criminal trial has been put on hold pending resolution of that matter. Well, this will be the second time this term the high court's going to hear a case involving the presumed Republican presidential nominee. Separate arguments were held earlier this month over whether Trump can be kicked off the Colorado primary ballot over claims that he committed insurrection in the January 6, 2021 Capitol event. Well, the high court was considering an emergency appeal filed by former President Trump to extend the delay in the trial stemming from special counsel Jack Smith's 2020 election interference case, arguing that he, as president, had immunity to protect him from prosecution. Well, that request came just days after a D.C. appeals court ruled the former president and 2024 GOP frontrunner is not immune from prosecution in Smith's case. Well, that request was for temporary relief to stay or block the appeals court mandate from taking effect, which would give the Trump legal team more time to file an appeal to the Supreme Court on the merits of whether a former president deserves immunity from criminal prosecution for actions while in office. The implications are staggering. Smith's... um, Uh, Days later, requested that the U.S. Supreme Court reject Trump's bid to delay his trial. Well, the court has now spoken. Though the special counsel's filing doesn't explicitly mention the upcoming November election or Trump's status as the Republican primary frontrunner, prosecutors described the case as having unique national importance and said that delay in the resolution of these charges threatens to frustrate the public interest in a speedy and fair verdict. End quote. Well, the trial stemming from Smith's case against Trump has been on hold pending resolution of the immunity question. If the prosecution of a president is upheld, such prosecutions will recur and become increasingly common, ushering in destructive cycles of recrimination. That's what the Trump request stated. Criminal prosecution, it went on to say, with its greater stigma and more severe penalties, imposes a far greater personal vulnerability on the president than any civil penalty, end quote. Well, the request added, the threat of future criminal prosecution by a politically opposed administration will overshadow every future president's official acts, especially the most politically controversial decisions. Well, the request uh, states that, The president's political opponents will seek to influence and control his or her decision via effective extortion or blackmail with the threat, explicit or implicit, 
of indictment by a future hostile administration for acts that do not warrant any such prosecution. This threat will hang like a millstone around every future president's neck, distorting presidential decision making, undermining the president's independence and clouding the president's ability to deal fearlessly and impartially with the duties of his office. End quote. Well, Trump's lawyers added without immunity or criminal prosecution, the presidency, as we know it, will cease to exist. Well, the decision comes after a Washington, D.C. federal judge, Tanya Chutkin, officially delayed the trial, which was set to begin on the 4th of March, a day before the critical Super Tuesday primary contest when Alabama, Alaska, American Samoa, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Virginia and Vermont Vote to select a GOP nominee, hence Super Tuesday. Well, Judge Chutkin said in December that she does not have jurisdiction over the matter while it is pending before the Supreme Court. And she put a pause on the case against the Republican 2024 frontrunner until the higher court determines its involvement. Smith charged the former president with conspiracy to defraud the United States. I'm just clarifying which among his many cases this one is conspiring to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding and conspiracy against rights. Those charges stem from Smith's investigation into whether Trump was involved in the Capitol riot on January 6th, back in 21, and any alleged interference in the 2020 election result. Trump pled not guilty to all charges in August of 2023. And so the grand soap opera continues. In other news, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell will step down from his position in November. Now, let me clarify, the 82-year-old senator will announce uh, the decision and did, I should say, earlier today. Uh, He has been the longest serving Senate leader in the United States history. One of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter, McConnell uh, said in prepared remarks, which were Uh, stated earlier in the day, as I have been thinking about when I would deliver some news to the Senate, I always imagined a moment when I had total clarity and peace about the sunset of my life. He added a moment when I am certain I will, uh, I have helped preserve the ideals. I so strongly believe it arrived today. McConnell spoke uh, this afternoon in the United States Senate, where he called the call for the next generation of leadership. I have full confidence in my a conference to choose my replacement and lead our country forward, he said, describing himself as immensely proud of the accomplishments he has uh, played some role in obtaining for the American people. He will serve out his Senate term. There was some confusion earlier today. He will serve out his Senate term, albeit from a different seat in the chamber, until January 2027. McConnell has faced pressure in recent months for his handling of a variety of issues, most notably Ukraine aid and the border security deal. In interviews with the Daily Caller, Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson, Utah Republican Senator Mike Lee and Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott all deeply critiqued McConnell in late February. It is challenging to negotiate for border security from a position of strength when too many legislatures share the Democrats conviction that defending Ukraine is more important than defending America. Well, McConnell acknowledged Republican frustration with him in his remarks on Wednesday saying, believe me, I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. McConnell went on to say, that said, I believe more strongly than ever that America's global leadership is essential to preserving the shining city on the hill that Ronald Reagan discussed. For as long as I am drawing breath on this earth, I will defend American exceptionalism. 
Again, Mitch McConnell will step away from his role as leader in the House, in the Senate, rather, but will retain his position until 2027 when that seat expires. He will not run for reelection. In other news, um, the House voted on the 13th of February to impeach Mayorkas. 24 to I should say 214 to 213 with every Democrat voting no. Senate Democrats need only a simple majority to dismiss the House's impeachment charges against Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas to move uh, a move that appears fairly likely. But uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said during a press conference uh, yesterday that a full Senate trial would be the best way to go forward when asked about his position on the Mayorkas impeachment. He asked uh, he was asked um, whether the senator thinks or his office was asked whether the senator thinks all Republican senators should vote against any potential motion to table the impeachment trial. Uh, McConnell said um, uh, McConnell is taking to uh, encourage GOP members to oppose the motion to table and whether he is doing anything to prepare for the possibility of an impeachment trial. The Senate Minority Leader's office responded by saying it had nothing else to add to McConnell's comments during the press conference. He's under pressure from some Senate colleagues to demand a full impeachment trial. Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Mike Lee and 11 other GOP senators last week, they sent a letter to McConnell urging him to ensure that the Senate conducts a proper trial of Mayorkas at the House's two articles of impeachment when they reach the Senate. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Well, Congress is barreling toward a shutdown deadline with no deal to avert a funding lapse as negotiations hit a fever pitch on Capitol Hill. Well, lawmakers on both sides, they're hoping to hash out a compromise to meet the March 1st deadline. March 1st. But there are growing concerns it will be missed and that the nation will contend with a partial government shutdown starting Saturday. Well, a few ways to um, uh, the fight could play out in the days ahead. Uh, Lawmakers on both sides have been hopeful of passing a minibus uh, by Friday that would include four full year funding bills. But it doesn't seem likely today's Wednesday. Senator Susan Collins, the top Republican on the Senate Appropriations Committee, told reporters on Tuesday the negotiators have made good progress on the bills, adding that she expects legislative text to be released soon. We've worked very hard over the recess to try to get agreement on several of the bills, and I'm hopeful that we can get it done, she said. She added, text could come as soon as in the next 24 to 48 hours. Today's Wednesday, tomorrow's Thursday. Hopefully that won't require another short-term stopgap bill and hope springs eternal, she went on to say. Well, under the uh, last stopgap, lawmakers agreed to extend funding for offices, including the Food and Drug Administration and the Departments of Housing and Urban Development, Transportation and Energy, as well as Agriculture through March the 1st. Well, that's this week. The remaining eight annual funding bills, which would also cover dollars for the Pentagon and the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services, come due next week. Then there's a, a short term gap. Democratic leaders indicated Tuesday that they may need a stopgap measure to buy time for a bigger bill. And while House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries was cautiously optimistic a shutdown could be avoided, he signaled lawmakers might have to pass a short-term bill for the remaining bills set to expire on the 8th of March. It may be important to come to an agreement that's bipartisan and anchored in common sense to extend the pending expiration of the eight additional bills that are scheduled to lapse on March 8th so that good faith, tough negotiations can continue in the absence of a government shutdown, he said. After a White House meeting with the president, Senate Majority 
Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, Speaker Mike Johnson and Mitch McConnell. Now, if Congress passes another stopgap bill, it will mark the fourth time lawmakers have had to kick the can down the road to buy more time for funding talks since late September, which was their initial deadline to hash out new funding levels for fiscal year 2024, of which we are now in. Well, the idea of another stopgap, also known as a continuing resolution, is already prompting some groans from negotiators. Pressed for his uh, thoughts on another stopgap through late March, Senator Jerry Moran, he told Republicans on the subcommittee that Kraft's uh, funding for the Department of Justice and that uh, lawmakers shouldn't um, shouldn't have one. I mean, if it's March the 22nd, it means that nothing will be completed until March the 22nd. At that point, he continued, the conversation will begin. We might as well just give up and get a continuing resolution for the whole year. Well, that's one option. And then there's a long-term continuing resolution. Well, members on both sides of the aisle, they've shot down the idea of a full-year stopgap, which experts warn could mean automatic cuts to funding under a budget cap agreement brokered by Biden and then-Speaker Kevin McCarthy last year. However, the idea saw renewed support from the House Freedom Caucus earlier this month when the hardline conservative group pressed Johnson to put forward a year-long stopgap bill if he can't win concessions on controversial conservative policy writers. And it's also on the mind of some GOP senators as the clock ticks closer to Friday and tensions flare in Washington. I think one or two things are going to happen. We're either going to end up with a bunch of short-term continuing resolutions until the fiscal year is over, or there's going to be ultimately a long-term continuing resolution to get us through the fiscal year. That's what Senator John Kennedy, the Republican out of Louisiana, ranking member on the Appropriations Subcommittee on Energy and Water Development, says, If you think over the next week or two weeks or a month that the United States Congress, House and Senate is going to be able to agree on 12 spending bills, well, you've been dipping into the um, ketamine stash, he went on to say. And then there's the fourth option. And that, of course, is the shutdown. Some are suggesting that would be the best thing. It would force their hands. It's possible to de- uh, that a deal will not materialize and that there will be a shutdown through GOP leaders in both chambers. They've expressed optimism. Such a scenario will be avoided. We've been working in good faith around the clock every single day for months and weeks and over the last several days, quite literally around the clock to get that job done. We're very optimistic. Speaker Johnson said on Tuesday, we believe that we can get to an agreement on those issues and prevent a government shutdown. And that's our first responsibility. But Johnson faces a wall of pressure from his party, its right flank, to hold the line for conservative policy wins. And again, that's uh, not by any means certain. Democrats have needled Republicans over the partisan writers. They uh, say serve as a key hurdle to the progress and comments to reporters on Tuesday. Mitch McConnell said Johnson was optimistic that the House will be able to move forward first with the four bills and sought to tamp down worries of a funding lapse later this week. Under no circumstances does anybody want to shut the government down, McConnell said. So I think we can stop that drama right here when it emerges. We're simply not going to do that. Again, today is Wednesday, March the 1st. Well, that's what Friday the clock is ticking. Well, marking the 30th anniversary of the Index of Economic Freedom, the Heritage Foundation released the 2024 edition of its annual Index of Economic Freedom on Monday. 
2023 was a year enveloped by the ongoing invasion of the U.S. southern border, Hamas's attack on Israel, Russia's ongoing incursion in Ukraine, Iran-backed Houthi attacks on U.S. military personnel and ships in the Red Sea, and the Chinese Communist Party's persistent saber-rattling. So it's been a pretty uneventful season. Well, the turmoil at home and abroad makes it abundantly clear that economic freedom hangs in the balance. And the global average score for economic freedoms continue hemorrhaging. It's uh, emblematic of this um, of this grim reality for the U.S. The 2024 index stands at a 23 year low of global economic freedom, rating only 58.6 percent out of 100. Well, Singapore held its position as the world's most free economy. Switzerland followed closely behind its second and Ireland third, followed by Taiwan and newly elevated Luxembourg rounded out the top five. The United States, once esteemed mostly free, a ranking continues to diminish this year, reaching the lowest level in the 30-year history of the index to 70.1. The U.S. sustained its global ranking of 25th freest, In the 2024 index, the Biden administration's uh, anti-growth economic and entrepreneurial policies and mounting deficit spending fueled this decline as examined in the report. But of course, that decline didn't begin with this administration. And my guess is it won't end with it. North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, Sudan, Zimbabwe, they remain the world's least economically free nations. The president of the Heritage Foundation said, we know from history that human flourishing comes in part from economic fairness, opportunity and liberty. We also know, however, that the enemies of freedom are persistently pursuing collectivism, equity and social justice. Conservatives know that these false idols produce disastrous results such as economic stagnation, poverty, deprivation and oppression. But too often we forget the source of their appeal. Now is the time for choosing and correcting the course. The Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom provides practical examples of successful policies proven in action. It is up to us to provide the political will to implement them. Another research fellow and editor of the index uh, added, the findings of the 2024 index are resounding. Conserving and further enhancing the institutions of economic freedom is the key to true human empowerment and development. The stark difference between Taiwan and China, Chile and Venezuela or Israel and Iran are powerfully clear as the 2024 index documents categorically freedom matters more than ever. By the way, you can download that uh, uh, listing at the Heritage Foundation's website if you're interested in more information. A New York appeals court judge has denied former President Trump's request to delay payment of the $464 million owed to the state after Attorney General Letitia James' lawsuit, but said he will temporarily allow the 2024 frontrunner and his sons to continue running their businesses during the appeals process. Well, Trump and his sons, Donald Jr. and Eric Trump, they were barred earlier this month from operating their business in New York for a range of two to three years, respectively. Trump was also found liable for hundreds of millions of dollars in damages in the civil fraud case brought against him, his family and the Trump organization by the New York attorney general. The former president is appealing that ruling. Well, on Wednesday, though, a New York appeals court judge ruled that the former president must post a bond for the full amount of the judgment and the independent director of compliance will be appointed. The judge will temporarily allow Trump and his sons to continue running the business as they appeal that decision. The filing is a temporary order before the motion goes before the full appeals court. 
Letitia James' brief to the panel is due on the 11th of March, and Trump's uh, reply is due on the 18th of March. The ruling comes after New York Judge Arthur Ngoran handed down his decision earlier in February after a month-long trial beginning in October and stemming from James' lawsuit alleging the former president inflated his assets and committed fraud. There were no victims, however, and the uh, former president is counting on that ultimately finding him not guilty in a future court hearings. We'll continue to follow that trial and those decisions. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Well, on Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court wrestled with two laws, one in Florida and the other in Texas that impose restrictions on social media companies seeking to control the content of their platforms. Now, we know how this works. The left-leaning big tech companies have been steadily and reliably hostile toward conservative speech on social media, ostensibly in the name of fighting disinformation and um, a number of isms, racism, sexism, extremism, anti-transgenderism, and the like. So Florida and Texas fought back. They passed laws that restrict these social media platforms from silencing speech they find inconvenient. But after nearly four hours of oral arguments, a majority of the justices seemed skeptical that the states could do could do so without violating the company's First Amendment rights. Well, the two um, the two court cases at issue, Moody versus NetChoice and NetChoice versus Paxton, are aptly described by the Wall Street Journal's editorial board. And I quote, the Florida law bans large social media platforms from removing the accounts of political candidates or suppressing posts by or about them. Platforms also can't take any action to censor, deplatform or shadow ban a journalistic enterprise based on the content of its publication or broadcast. And they must apply their standard in a consistent manner among their users. The Texas law bars platforms from making editorial decisions based on the viewpoint of a user's expression, which isn't clearly defined. The law is so broad it could be read to bar platforms from suppressing pro-Nazi speech or content that glorifies eating disorders. Both laws require platforms to explain in detail why posts are removed. Companies could face stiff government penalties and lawsuits. Well, as Chief Justice John Roberts put it, What the government's doing here is saying, you must do this. You must carry these people. You've got to explain if you don't. That's not the First Amendment. And, well, he's right. Congress shall pass no law. Well, left-wing Justice Elena Kagan, she echoed Roberts. Why isn't that, you know, a classic First Amendment violation uh, for the state to come in and say, we're not going to allow you to enforce those sorts of restrictions? So the court did not seem to be very favorable, at least in the questions and comments being made. Now, Roberts spelled it out even more succinctly and grimly, reminding us that the First Amendment bars the government from censoring speech, but not private companies. So he said they can discriminate against particular groups that they don't like. Texas Solicitor General Aaron Nielsen, though, he characterized his state's law as a modest effort to regulate the power of social media platforms that is nowhere near the heartland of the First Amendment. Well, the case, well, it's pretty rough, but the First Amendment is the First Amendment. And trust us, what the uh, what has been felt, the wrath of these speech stifling restrictions, particularly the so-called news raiders, uh, has made it tough for some on one end of the political spectrum. Mark Alexander said this about 
of a controversy and the case before the court. You have heard of the so-called fact checkers and the fake newsbusters who pose as journalists with outfits like USA Today, which has targeted the Patriot Post with the fabricated fake fact checks, as well as other publications. Under the pretense of objective journalism, their mission is the systematic read, uh, redlining rather, of free speech and in ways that are imperceptible to most Americans. They operate primarily under the umbrella of Democrat left media propagandists who in recent years have perfected their scheme to undermine the First Amendment and in effect rig elections. Well, Monday's questioning, though, wasn't entirely one sided. As NBC News reported, justices from across the ideological spectrum raised fears about the power and influence of big social media platforms like YouTube and Facebook, and they questioned whether the laws should be blocked entirely. So there's that. A uh, SCOTUS blog put it this way. The justices pressed Paul Clement, who represented the trade groups, to discuss the interaction between the Texas law and Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which generally shields tech tech companies from liability for content published by others. Justice Neil Gorsuch told Clement that, in his view, there is a tension between the idea that a tech company can't be held liable for a user's speech and the idea that moderating that content is the tech company's speech. It is it speech for purposes of the First Amendment, he asked, but not the purposes of Section 230. Well, separating the wheat from the chaff is uh, pretty difficult, Justice Neil Gorsuch said. He was the first of three Donald Trump appointees to the high court. Justice Clarence Thomas was more um, pointed in his critique of the big tech uh, litigants. Can you give me one example of a case in which we said that the First Amendment protects the right to censor? Justice Samuel Alito, too, seemed more inclined to uphold the Florida and Texas laws. Is content moderation, he asked, actually more than a euphemism for censorship? These are great questions, and the justices have their work cut out for them as they try to strike a balance between free speech and constitutional protection. A landmark decision is expected by this summer, and it will be significant. Meanwhile, testimony resumed at 2 p.m. today in the misconduct hearing of Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis whose office, this was actually yesterday, whose office is responsible for prosecuting Donald Trump, but whose personal misconduct has overshadowed the uh, racketeering charges she brought against the former president. Well, the star witness was to be Nathan Wade's former law partner, Terrence Bradley, who uh, challenged the timeline and testimony of Willis and Wade as to when their romantic relationship began and thereby proved that the duo lied under oath about it. If he does so and I wasn't able to follow as closely as I would have liked. Um, it'd likely be game, set, match for the romantic duo. In this case, it's the digital fingerprints that are most condemning. As the Blaze reported, the two claimed they, that they began their relationship in early 22, right after Wade was hired, but witnesses rather have also claimed otherwise, saying they were together as early as 2019. According to the phone records, the two have exchanged over 2,000 voice calls and just under 12,000 text messages. I haven't sent that many text messages to my husband. It'll be interesting to see how vigorously defense tries to deny this digital record and whether the mainstream media will run interference for them. Well, the hearing took place yesterday, and it was um, not favorable uh, to the two attorneys. We'll see what happens next and what impact that's likely to have on the charges and the case against former President Donald Trump. Meanwhile, former President Trump is courting black voters 
Democrats are panicking about Trump's uh, outreach to black Americans, a voting bloc that's traditionally gone nine to one for Democrats over Republicans, but appears increasingly dissatisfied with Bidenomics and the president's job killing wage suppressing open border policies. As The Hill reports, black leaders are in high dudgeon over Trump's comments about black voters at the Black Conservative Federation annual gala in South Carolina on Friday, calling the comments racist. Why did uh, what did Trump say? Mainly that blacks can relate to his legal woes. I got indicted for nothing for something that is nothing, he told the crowd. And a lot of people said that's why black people like me, because they have been hurt so badly and discriminated against. And they actually viewed me as I'm being discriminated against. It's been pretty amazing, but possibly maybe there's something there. End quote. Okay, it was sort of an awkward and clumsy statement he made. Possibly, maybe we'll see in November. President Biden made a surprise appearance on a late night comedy show. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't recorded uh, late night. It wasn't um, comedic. But other than that, the reporting was accurate. Joe Biden's desperate uh, to reconnect with a voter demographic, young people that's been running away from him at the alarming at an alarming rate, just happened to drop in on late night. Also, um, ran Seth Myers. It was scripted to the max, of course, as evidenced by Biden just happening to don the dark Brandon sunglasses as soon as Meyer mentioned that semi-popular meme for a sense of um, Biden's youth vote leakage. I got a load of um, you can get a load of these numbers in 2020 voters aged 18 to 29 went for Biden over Trump by a 61 to 36 percent margin. And now those numbers are 52 percent to 48 percent in favor of Joe. When Myers noted that uh, Biden is 81, Biden replied uh, with a scripted who told you that a bit more colorfully. That's classified. Well, it went on from there. And there are complaints uh, being raised about the president being unavailable to more serious journalists. Well, just when we think uh, we've seen the worst of the uh, the media, they prove us wrong. In the wake of the murder of 22-year-old Lakin Riley, an Augusta University nursing student who was out for a jog at the University of Georgia campus when she was set upon and bludgeoned to death by a 26-year-old in the country illegally from Venezuela, Uh, The Associated Press couched Riley's murder in terms of females going for jogs by themselves rather than open borders, unchecked illegal immigration and the soft on crime laws of sanctuary cities. Riley's death was once again has put the spotlight on the dangers female runners face, the article read. Previously, the 2018 death of University of Iowa student Molly Tibbetts while out jogging prompted an outpouring from other women who shared their tales of being harassed and followed. And we thought the media was above despicable victim blaming. Meanwhile, according to CNN, there was little evidence indicating a connection between immigration and crime. I'm not sure where they have been. That's an appallingly wrong assessment. If the border were secure, said a noticeably downcast Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, this individual never would have been in the country illegally and never would have committed another crime, said a friend at the memorial service for Riley on campus yesterday. She exuded devotion with each and everything that she did. A devoted Christian, sister, student, daughter, and friend. And we have no doubt that she would have been an incredible nurse. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, this past weekend, Senator... Uh, 
Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was in New York City to celebrate the Chinese Lunar Year Parade. During the event, he appeared on a stage with a number of New York City leaders, including Mayor Eric Adams. At one point during the event, while the Chinese Communist Party national anthem was being played, Schumer briefly put his hand over his heart and then proceeded to wave a small Chinese communist flag in one hand and a U.S. flag in the other. The disconnect from Schumer regarding America's biggest geopolitical threat is telling. As FBI Director Christopher Wray recently warned Congress, China poses a growing threat to American security. Wray noted that the CHICOM has already built economic espionage and theft of personal and corporate data as a kind of a bedrock of their economy and their economic strategy, but they are eagerly pursuing AI advancements to try to accelerate that process. He also observed that China has a bigger hacking program than every other major nation combined. It is so large, he said, that if each one of the FBI's cyber agents and intelligence analysts focused exclusively on the China threat, Chinese hackers would still outnumber FBI cyber personnel by at least 50 to 1. Yet there was Schumer celebrating with the Chinese communist flag. And at least 16 schools across the country, the book How to Blow Up a Pipeline is Required Reading, published in 2021, Swedish professor Andreas Malm's book, is effectively a communist manual that promotes using eco-terrorism as a tool for overthrowing capitalism. Malm effectively admits that engaging in such terrorism will result in people being killed. Well, there is that. Demolish them, burn them, blow them up. Let the capitalists who keep investing in the fire know that their properties will be trashed. That's a quote from the book. Unsurprisingly, these courses that support using eco-terrorism serve to encourage the radicalization of students to favor other terrorist organizations such as Hamas. Effectively, they're justifying violence in the name of a radical ideological cause, in this case, the climate cult. The West and the U.S. in particular are villainized as the climate-destroying oppressors and therefore are deserving of a violent response in order to be stopped or overthrown. And it's perfectly justifiable because the end does, in fact, justify the means. Well, the Supreme Court is apparently torn over Florida and Texas laws regulating social media companies and Swedish, uh, rather Sweden, cleared the final obstacle to NATO admission and will become its newest member. Harvard's anti-Semitism task force co-chair has resigned over doubts about the university's commitment. Economic freedom in the U.S. fell to the lowest level in 30 years. Consumers are increasingly pushing back against price increases and they're winning. Mercedes-Benz has abandoned its 2030 electric-only production target. And Instagram employees knew they were facilitating child exploitation, and they were okay with that. California requires pharmacists to undergo DEI training bashing straight white Christian males for license renewal. And a Vermont Christian school has been barred from competing in girls' basketball tournaments after forfeiting a game against a team with a six-foot-one trans or male player who, by the way, injured several other girls in previous games. Well, Trump and Biden, they they are inching closer to the 2020 rematch in Michigan with Super Tuesday just a week away. Voters in Michigan handed decisive victories to President Biden and to former President Trump Tuesday, increasing the odds of a 2020 rematch as the candidates look to solidify their frontrunner positions on Super Tuesday. The Associated Press called Michigan for Biden and Trump shortly after polls closed on Tuesday, leaving both candidates undefeated in their bid to once again represent their respective parties in 2024's presidential election. Biden's victory in the state came despite a late um, 
push among Arab Americans to abandon their support for the president over his continued support for Israel in the war in Gaza. A growing movement calls on voters to cast an uncommitted ballot instead of continuing what has typically been overwhelming support for the president. The movement picked up the support of uh, uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, who announced her public opposition to supporting the president ahead of her home state's primary. Hunter Biden arrived on Capitol Hill Wednesday morning for his highly anticipated deposition as part of the impeachment inquiry against his father, President Biden. The first son uh, took uh, questions from lawmakers and congressional investigators behind closed doors before the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees. The deposition was scheduled to begin at 10 a.m. Under Biden's testimony comes after his uncle, President Biden's younger brother, James Biden, testified last week as part of the impeachment inquiry. James Biden testified that President Biden has never had any involvement or any direct or indirect financial interest in his business ventures. A Lubbock, Texas federal judge ruled Tuesday that lawmakers unconstitutionally passed the $1.7 trillion government funding bill in 2022 when they did so under the pandemic era rule allowing members of the U.S. House to vote on matters uh, by proxy instead of in person. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, a Republican, requested the courts block a provision of the funding bill that gave pregnant workers stronger legal protections U.S. District Judge Wesley Hendricks, he reviewed the request and issued a limited ruling on one of two provisions Paxton sought to be blocked. Hendricks, appointed by former President Trump, ruled the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act was wrongly passed, blocking the law from being enforced against the state as an employer. The Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, enacted in uh, December of 2022, requires employers to provide reasonable accommodation for pregnant workers. In his ruling, Hendricks noted that his injunction is only applicable to state government employees. He filed a Paxton filed a lawsuit last year arguing the federal spending package was unconstitutionally passed because over half of the House of Representatives were not physically present to provide a quorum. Yet they still voted by proxy in May of 2020. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, the Democrat, helped get a rule in place, allowing lawmakers to vote by proxy in response to the covid-19 pandemic. When Republicans took control of the House in 22, they ditched the proxy rule after challenging it in court unsuccessfully. Hendricks said in a 120 page ruling that for over 200 years leading up to the voting proxy rules adopted, Congress understood that the majority of members of the House or the Senate were required to be physically present to have a quorum to pass legislation as stipulated under the Constitution's quorum clause. Supreme Court precedent has long held that quorum clause requires presence and the clause's text distinguished those absent members from the quorum and provided a mechanism for obtaining a physical quorum by compelling absent members to attend, he wrote. Well, Paxton said Congress acted egregiously when it passed the $1.7 trillion funding bill. Hendricks also found that in his ruling that Texas did not have standing to challenge $20 million appropriated in the bill to fund a pilot program providing case management and other services to non-citizens during immigration removal proceedings. The top four congressional leaders left the White House on Tuesday after an intense sit down with the president as the clock ticks down to a possible partial government shutdown at the end of this week. 
The lawmakers, House Speaker Mike Johnson, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, affirmed that all four were committed to finding some kind of deal on government funding by Friday, but gave little insight into how they planned to do it. Well, the purpose of the meeting was to discuss the upcoming federal spending deadlines on March the 1st and March the 8th, as well as the need to pass aid for Ukraine. Schumer described the discussion on government funding as productive and intense and said he expressed that a short term extension of fiscal year 2023's funding, known as a continuing resolution, might be needed to buy more time to reach a deal. Jeffrey said the meeting was honest and candid and that it included firm discussions about the border. Johnson, who met with Biden one on one, the main meeting con- um, after the main meeting concluded, called both conversations frank and honest. The speaker said unequivocally he wants to avoid a government shutdown. Schumer said after the meeting, uh, we made a clear uh, that that means not letting any of the government appropriations bills lapse, which means you need some continuing resolutions to get that done. But we're making good progress and we're hopeful that we can get this done really quickly. He said that uh, while the differences remain, they're not insurmountable. Johnson has not given any indication, however, that he would agree to put another continuing resolution on the floor after having said he was done with them in November. A government shutdown could mean government offices abruptly close and dozens of federal employees being furloughed if it lasts beyond the weekend. The main tension in the meeting came from discussions about sending aid to Ukraine. Senate and White House negotiators, they released a bipartisan deal on border security and foreign aid, including $60 billion for Ukraine earlier this year. But that effort died in the face of overwhelming criticism from Republicans who believe the border measures were inadequate and must precede any other funding measures. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Tuesday responded to President Biden's mention of a possible ceasefire in Gaza, saying a majority of Americans support Israel's continuing its campaign until victory. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments, but we do have news coming up at the top of the hour, and we will return with more headlines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Tuesday responded to President Biden's mention of a possible ceasefire in Gaza, saying a majority of Americans support Israel continuing its campaign until victory. Well, in a video address, he said that he's led a political campaign since the beginning of the war, whose purpose is to curb pressures intended to end the war before its time, and on the other hand, gain support for Israel. Netanyahu pointed to significant success in this area, pointing to a Harvard-Harris poll showing that more than 80% of the American public supports Israel. That means four out of five citizens in the United States support Israel and not Hamas, Netanyahu said in Hebrew. This gives us additional strength to continue the campaign until absolute victory, end quote. Well, Netanyahu published the video a day after President Biden expressed his hopes for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas that would pause hostilities and allow for the remaining hostages to be released by early next week. Asked when the um, when he hoped such a deal could be finalized, the president said, well, I hope by the end of the weekend. My national security advisor tells me that they're close. They're close. They're not done yet. My hope is by next Monday we'll have a ceasefire, end quote. Netanyahu had said Sunday that an Israeli military offensive in the southernmost city of Rafah could be delayed somewhat if a deal for a week's long 
ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is reached. He claims that total victory in Gaza is weeks away once the offensive begins. Talks toward a deal have resumed at the specialist level in Gutter, which is one of the mediators. Polls have closed in Michigan, where voters had the chance Tuesday to cast their ballots in the state-run primary elections for both Republicans and Democrat presidential candidates. Democratic primary voters were able to choose from President Biden and his challengers, Representative Dean Phillips of Minnesota and author Marianne Williamson, who, by the way, has re-entered the race. Those voters will also have the option to cast an uncommitted vote. Meanwhile, Republican voters on Tuesday had the choice between former President Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. The only two GOP candidates left in the race, though others would have since dropped out, uh, appeared on the ballot, including former uh, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, businessman Vivek Ramaswamy and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. There are 16 delegates at stake. Michigan's Democrat-controlled legislature set the state's primary date earlier than usual this year to comply with the wishes of the Democratic National Committee. But shifting the date for the Democrats pushed the Republicans out of compliance with the Republican National Committee. To avoid a penalty from the RNC, Michigan Republicans came up with a split primary system with voters casting ballots on Tuesday and on March the 2nd. On Saturday, the Michigan GOP will hold a party-run convention in Detroit. The winner of that contest could receive up to 39 delegates, although they will be um, distributed by district. There are 13 total districts and three delegates per district. During that contest, voters only have the choice between Trump and Haley. Michigan has a total of 55 pledged delegates. Uh, Michigan's government is under full control by the Democrats. Republicans dominated in Michigan elections from 72 to 88. But the state became part of the so-called blue wall that backed Democrat nominees in six straight presidential elections from 1972 to 2012. Trump changed that equation in 2016 and his narrow uh, flipping of the state helped him win the White House over Democrat nominee Hillary Clinton. But President Biden captured Michigan by nearly three points in the 2020 election as he brought Michigan back into the Democrats column and denied Trump's reelection. Well, President Biden chatted with NM- NM- NBC's, I want to say MSNBC, but it's just NBC's late night host Seth Meyers on Monday for a friendly interview with a liberal comedian as reporters who cover the White House yearn for the same chance. Some are even resigning, um, resigned to joking about it. Seth Meyers played a newsman on SNL sketch weekend update. So maybe this is a gradual step in the right direction with enough practice. Maybe the president can build up the stamina for a real sit-down, one current White House reporter said. The president's dodging of one-on-one interviews compared to his most recent predecessors has frustrated journalists throughout his term. Now Biden sit down with a friendly comic that addressed public concerns with his age underscored um, the lengths of, uh, that he's going to to sideline traditional press. New York Times chief White House correspondent Peter Baker said, I have no problem with the president talking with late night talk show hosts or celebrity interviewers or whomever he wants. But that shouldn't be a, a substitute for interviews with professional journalists who cover the White House for independent news outlets. Well, this president has given far fewer sit down interviews than his modern predecessors and is the only president in our lifetime who has not given a single interview to reporters for any of the major newspapers. Baker went on to say one former White House reporter said that 
The Myers appearance was good for Biden to do, but agreed it was no substitute for doing interviews with journalists. Biden, who recently skipped the traditional pre-Super Bowl interview for the second straight year, hasn't sat down for a formal news interview with a journalist since October 15th, the installment of CBS 60 Minutes. Well, since 60 Minutes, Biden granted interviews with Spanish radio host Tony Arias, CNN's Anderson Cooper on the podcast about grief, comedian Conan O'Brien, Reverend Al Sharpton on his radio show, and now Myers. He also briefly spoke with NBC's Al Roker during a Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade by phone, as well as Ryan Seacrest during ABC's New Year's Eve broadcast, both alongside First Lady Jill Biden. Well, last year, he also did interviews with openly pro-Biden journalist Nicole Wallace of MSNBC and John Hardwood, the former CNN White House correspondent. The Associated Press recently reported that Biden has given 33 news conferences in the first three years of his term, the fewest in that time span since Ronald Reagan during his first three years as president. Biden has given 86 interviews compared to 422 given by Barack Obama during his first three years in office, according to the AP. Obama also faced criticism and in a 2010 political article said he talks to the press corps far less than did Bill Clinton or even George W. Bush. So we'll see if uh, the president decides to sit down with more serious journalists in the near future. Well, the city of Denver is considering reducing some public employees hours to zero down on to impending budget cuts driven by spiraling migrant crisis. Uh, Denver is not explicitly using the term layoffs to describe the cost cutting measures, but is considering eliminating working hours entirely for some lifeguards and desk workers. The city's Department of Parks and Recreation said on Monday, the department is planning on cutting four point three million dollars from its budget to help Denver handle the significant financial strain caused by the migrant crisis. More than thirty six thousand migrants are estimated to have arrived in Denver since twenty twenty two and roughly half of the new arrivals have put down roots in the city. Employees who have uh, their hours reduced to the point where they aren't earning enough money are still allowed to apply for unemployment benefits in the same way as if they were laid off. Information posted on the state's website indicates they would be eligible to receive benefits. And about 264,000 criminal cases have been suspended by Houston Police Department due to a lack of personnel. Well, you don't. Uh, You don't show up where you're not welcome. Around 264,000 criminal cases, including more than 4,000 sex assault cases, have been suspended by the Houston Police Department since 2016, citing a lack of personnel. uh, And um, according to the Houston Police Chief, Troy Finner, he announced on Monday that an in-depth review of the department's use of the lack of personnel code over the past eight years revealed it had suspended around 10 percent of the 2.8 million incident reports that were filed. The Houston Police Department first revealed last week that just over 4,000 cases of alleged sexual assaults had been suspended over lack of personnel, which sparked a closer look at how the code was used throughout all divisions of the police department. The police chief voiced his frustration at his uh, department suspending the assault cases last week saying that the code should have never existed but was developed around 10 years ago. He said that he first became aware of the code being used in 2021 and he ordered his department to stop using it to suspend cases. He added that an investigation is underway to look into why his order was disobeyed. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. 
Well, an Illinois judge announced late today that former President Trump has been removed from the state's 2024 Republican presidential primary ballot, citing his role in the January 6th, 2021 Capitol riots. Now, keep in mind, the Supreme Court is here in Colorado's case where they have decided to do the same. Cook County Circuit Judge Tracy Porter barred Trump from the Illinois ballot one month after the anti-Trump challenge was dismissed by the Illinois State Board of Elections. Illinois goes to the polls on March the 19th. Illinois is now the third state where Trump was uh, booted from the ballot after Colorado and Maine. But those decisions were paused uh, pending the appeal of the Colorado case to the U.S. Supreme Court. The story is developing. We will continue to follow. Well, signifying more Americans name immigration as the most important problem facing the U.S. at 28 percent than did a month ago at 20 percent. Immigration has now passed the government as the most often cited problem. According to a new uh, Monmouth University poll, a majority of Americans supported the construction of a border wall separating the United States from Mexico, 53 percent. On the other hand, 46 percent of respondents said they oppose it. This is up from previous years, including during the Trump administration. Uh, More than eight in 10 Americans see illegal immigration as either a very serious 61 percent or somewhat serious problem at 23 percent. As the U.S. Army struggles with recruitment, the service is cutting its force by about 24,000 and a restructuring that it says will help the service fight in future wars. The almost 5% of jobs cut will mostly affect posts that have remained empty and not actual soldiers. The Army is not asking current soldiers to leave as the Army builds back in strength, back in strength over the next few years. Most installations will likely see an increase in the number of soldiers actually stationed there, the Army said. Uh, There also will be about 10,000 posts cut from cavalry squadrons. Um, striker brigade uh, combat teams, infantry brigade combat teams, and security force assistant brigades, which are used to train foreign forces. At the same time, however, the plan will add about 7,500 troops in the other critical missions, including air defense and counter drone units, and five new task forces around the world with enhanced cyber intelligence and long-range strike capabilities. Republican representatives uh, Jim Jordan of Ohio and Tom McClintock of California on Tuesday demanded the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas hand over any information the agency has on the illegal immigration suspected of murdering um, a Georgia nursing student last week. In a two-page letter, Jordan and McClintock asked that Mayorkas comply with the House Judiciary Committee's request on details and records pertaining to the immigration status of Jose Antonio Ibarra, 26. In September of 22, the Venezuelan national illegally crossed into El Paso, Texas, and was released on parole by Customs and Border Protection shortly thereafter. The inquiry requests information on Ibarra, including his immigration case history, entries into the U.S., Uh, Border Patrol processing encounters and whether Immigration and Customs Enforcement has an immigration detainer on him. The letter comes as Mayorkas soon faces the prospect of a Senate impeachment trial after the House impeached him some two weeks ago. Catholic churches in the United States have been attacked at least 400 times over the past four years, according to data compiled by the Catholic advocacy organization Catholic Vote. The hundreds of attacks across the nation began in connection with widespread civil unrest in May of 2020, Catholic Vote said. Examples include church burnings, 
beheadings of statues of Jesus Christ or the Virgin Mary, swastikas rather, painted on gravestones, satanic and blasphemous statements graffitied on walls, windows smashed, masses disrupted, and even the murder of a Catholic priest. Catholic vote uh, has only found evidence of an arrest in about 25% of those cases that it tracked and estimates that the attacks have caused over $25 million in physical damages to the church. The Biden administration has thus far refused to act to protect Catholic churches, Catholic Vote says, and stop these acts of domestic terrorism. In December of 21, Catholic Vote sent a letter to the Attorney General and the Department of Justice calling on them to act, pointing to a federal statute which requires the Attorney General to investigate and prosecute such crimes. Vice President Kamala Harris's husband released a $1.7 billion plan to end hunger in the U.S. by 2030. Well, the second gentleman, Doug Imhoff, unveiled nearly $1.7 billion in new commitments to the Biden administration's efforts to end hunger by the end of the decade. The list includes more than 140 commitments from nonprofits, insurers, health systems, local officials, and academia. Sixteen cities across the uh, the country have pledged to create task forces and action plans to end hunger and reduce diet-related diseases by 2030. The $1.7 billion in new initiatives adds to the $8 billion announced in September of 2022 when President Biden set a goal of ending hunger and reducing diet-related diseases by 2030. About 12.8% of U.S. households, or about 17 million, did not have enough money or other resources to get sufficient food in 2022, according to the Economic Research Service at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That was up from 10.2% the previous year. While Macy's is closing 150 stores in the next three years, barely bears mentionings. Three years is quite a distance from now. But the retailer said Tuesday that it would close about 150 underperforming Macy's stores or about 30 percent of its fleet over the next three years. It will focus on upgrading its remaining 350s Macy's locations while also opening smaller versions of its namesake chain and adding Bloomingdale's and uh, Bloom. Blue Mercury locations. I'm not sure what Blue Mercury is, but the strategy is designed to fend off activist investors and boost the company's moribund stock price and sales. Macy's and the entire department store sector have been hit on all sides in recent years. Department stores have been pressured by the rise of Amazon, the growing strength of discount chains such as TJ Maxx and online brands. Macy's stock prices has dropped 75% from a peak of $73 a share in 2015. Since then, it's closed nearly 300 stores, almost one-third of its locations, but still operates about 700 across its brands. And 30% of them, or 150 stores, will be uh, shut over the next three years. The IRS got an $80 billion raise, effectively doubling the size of the tax agency's workforce. Yet despite being flush with more taxpayer dollars, the IRS has yet to uh, require employees to return to the office full time, as it is currently 50 percent on site, 50 percent remote. Thus, when Republican lawmakers ask when the IRS will finally end its covid induced teleworking system and get all agency employees back in the office full time, The expected response should be immediately. Well, the agency is supposedly working for the good of the country, isn't it? Well, here's the rub, which is why the IRS has thus far refused to end its temporary COVID remote work system. 
It would not be able to hire the desired amount or number of employees should it require them to all come into the office. Also requiring IRS employees to come into the office could limit the scope of the agency, which is exactly what Washington does not want to do. Meanwhile, Hamas has rejected a temporary ceasefire. President Biden, in attempting to placate the radical leftist anti-Israel component within his own party, has been seeking to put pressure on Israel to agree to a temporary ceasefire in its war with Hamas. In exchange for a ceasefire, the president uh, hopes to get Hamas to release the more than 100 Israeli hostages the terrorist organization is still holding. My national security advisor tells me we are very close, the president said on Monday. We're not there yet, but we're close, he says. However, Hamas leadership is having none of it. If the ceasefire is not permanent, well, as Hamas official uh, said, they're not interested in any concessions that do not lead to a complete and total cessation of the aggressive aggression against our people. Of course, that won't float with Israeli leadership who have vowed to eliminate Hamas from Gaza since they began this conflict on October 7th. By Monday, we'll know if Biden is successful in achieving some form of ceasefire. We've got a drug for that. Well, it seems to be the approach almost reflexively dispensing drugs. Among the victims of this emphasis on medication are adolescent girls. As new research indicates that the monthly antidepressant dispensing rate for girls aged 12 to 17 has surged 129.6% since the communist Chinese allowed a deadly coronavirus to escape from their Wuhan Institute of Virology. As Axios reports, antidepressant prescribing to youth rose 63.5% during the pandemic, with adolescent girls accounting for some of the sharpest increases. As Axios adds, a shortage of mental health workers and the shift toward telehealth to promote prescribing may have contributed to the prioritization of drug treatments over therapy. Hey, if you're listening in Seattle, we're out of time. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Pedro Bartes in Portland. Hang on. There's more to come. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Portland-only segments of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Hollywood director Rob Reiner's new documentary, God and Country, was released in theaters last week, and it warns Americans of an impending Christian nationalist takeover of the country. Just in time for the election. Well, the Associated Press declared Saturday, many believe the founders wanted a Christian America. Some want the government to declare one now. On Tuesday, Alexander Ward and Heidi Pridzbilla, she warned in Politico, Trump's allies prepare to infuse Christian nationalism in second administration. Well, such manufacturers represent a coordinated effort to stoke fear before the 2024 election. That's what the Family Research Council Action President Jody Heiss pointed out. She was a guest host on Washington Watch earlier this week. Their purpose is not just to rally the left, but probably even more so to intimidate and silence Christians who embrace a biblical worldview. Well, the purpose of Reiner's yellow journalism is more concerning than its aim. The left's definition of Christian nationalism tends to be a a coat that's cut to fit whatever it needs to fit at any given time. Regent University professor A.L. Nolte said, again, speaking on the Washington Watch, as with donkeys and tails, it gets harder to pin the, the uh, scare on the elephant after you've been blindfolded and spun in circles. Some definitions of Christian nationalism have little in common with Christianity. Take Reiner's perspective. The idea is that America was born as a white Christian nation, and these people are virulent about returning to that, and they'll do it at um, 
uh, using any means necessary, including violence. And we saw this happen on January 6th. So they pin an awful lot on the uh, several dozens of people on January 6th, representing the entire Christian community, at least the white Christians in the country. Well, most Christians would, would have difficulty recognizing themselves in this description. For starters, Christianity knows no ethnic barriers, Revelation 7-9. Christians are commanded to submit to the government in Romans 13-1. And violence disqualifies a man from Christian leadership, 1 Timothy 3.3. Well, Reiner's definition wasn't particularly concerned with scriptural accuracy, as the entire documentary really served as a Trojan horse for progressive ideology. That's what Southern Seminary professor Andrew Walker wrote. His documentary painted institutions as disparate as um, the Heritage Foundation, for example, Turning Point USA and Hillsdale College with the same broad brush, even though the first two aren't sectarian and the third isn't political. Reiner gives the game away when he talks about white Christian nationalism, Nolte noted, a mistaken conflation of white ethnic nationalism with Christian nationalism. Some leftist definitions simply equate Christian nationalism with social conservatism, in which case I would be in that category. I'm a Christian and I'm a conservative. Nolte described a book titled Taking America Back for God by two scholars named Perry and Whitehead. In the book, they took six questions, which are generally good questions, if you're trying to measure social conservatism and use them as a measure for Christian nationalism. Well, these measures included support for prayer in schools, opposition to abortion and same-sex marriage, and an acknowledgement of Christian principles in America's founding. So what you often find is that Christian nationalism is basically just social conservatism sort of relabeled, Nolte went on to conclude. Well, this definition becomes increasingly unrealistic as left-wing extremism puts more and more Americans on the right side of the social and cultural policy disputes, particularly where transgender ideology is at play. The coalition opposed to pornographic books in school libraries, for instance, includes not just Christians, but also Jews such as Ben Shapiro, Muslims like the parents in Dearborn, Michigan, or Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, and agnostics like Jordan Peterson. The term Christian nationalism approaches meaninglessness when used to describe people who are not Christians and might not even be nationalist. Well, some leftist definitions of Christian nationalism combine biblical positions with non-biblical positions. Uh, the co-author of the political piece that I talked about yesterday stated on Tuesday, we're talking about here not just isolationism, immigration. We're talking about ending same-sex marriage, abortion, reducing access to contraceptives, but also surrogacy, no-fault divorce, sex education in public schools. But not so fast. Those are two separate issue sets, Nolte pointed out. Opposition to immigration and an isolationist foreign policy aren't the preferred policies of a populist segment of the contemporary American right. But they shouldn't be lumped together with what Nolte calls family-oriented social conservative policies. Well, even if both sets of positions are found on the political right, they're espoused by two separate groups of social conservatives, he goes on to explain. Again, quoting Perry and Whitehead, Nolte says, among regular church attenders, they actually found less hostility toward those of different racial groups toward immigrants, but there was more opposition to same-sex marriage and abortion. While among those who were socially conservative, but did not attend church, what they found was the exact opposite. Well, at the risk of committing an overgeneralization, one might say that there was an inverse relationship between the depth of a person's Christian walk and their espousal of nationalist policies. Does that sound like Christian nationalism?
Well, some leftist definitions of Christian nationalism simply mean that it's bad for Christians to be involved in politics. For instance, they're um, all after Speaker Mike Johnson for his Christian faith. He's a Christian statesman who is certainly influenced and guided by his face, but that's no different from the liberal left being guided by their secular or whatever worldview uh, that they might embrace. Really, um, it really galls the left that Mike Johnson has the unmitigated temerity to be a fairly conventional Southern Baptist, Nolte pointed out, with a touch of sarcasm. Yes, he's quite conservative on family issues, but as a conventional Baptist, he also stands with an over 200-year tradition of Baptists supporting religious liberty. Make that nearly 400 years in America since Baptist minister Roger Williams founded the colony in Rhode Island as a haven for freedom of conscience. Well, the point is... If somebody is truly committed to religious liberty, you never have to worry about them imposing Christianity. Uh, They want to protect their freedom to believe and not believe as you choose. Yet no leftist definition of Christian nationalism acknowledge its presence on the political left. Follow along, if you will, with this thought experiment Nolte set forth. Imagine a situation in which a Republican president goes to a church, a church that has been predominantly associated with Republican politics in the past, on a federal holiday and gives a speech where he talks about how New Testament principles ought to be the basis of our politics here in America. Would the media label that as Christian nationalism? Well, the answer most likely would be yes. Well, over Martin Luther King Jr. Day weekend in 2023, President Joe Biden spoke from that man's one-time pulpit in Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church, declaring that certain passages of the Old Testament described the essence of the American promise and inspired his vision to redeem the soul of America. That's in quotes. Yet according to the propagandists now loudly decrying Christian nationalism, that somehow was not considered Christian nationalism. So when defining the term, it kind of depends on who is using the New Testament and whether the media outlets in question like the use uh, to which the New Testament is being put. Well, Nolte suggests the entire project was political. His dissertation had examined how secularists in Turkey, France and other countries have used extreme fear language about religious reactionaries to mobilize constituencies that supported secularism. He warned that this strategy backfired in Turkey, where it generally pushed most of the Islamic believers in Turkey more toward radicalism. Well, Nolte argued leftists in America have made a deliberate attempt to craft a similar narrative. In particular, he pointed to The Handmaid's Tale, a um, tailor-made scary tale that's going to appeal particularly to secular educated women who do not attend church and are not familiar with Christian belief. Nolte criticized the way it twisted scripture to depict a misogynistic, theocratic society that has nothing in common with the policy goals of socially conservative Christians in America. Well, ultimately, fear mongering about the slur Christian nationalism says far more about those who wield it than those who aim to just they aim to describe In the um, red scares of the 1920s and 50s, allegations that there was a communist under every rock, tree, bush, government desk and movie script did little to inform the American public about which people really were communists. But they did inform Americans that the accusers were anti-communists. Similarly, accusations of Christian nationalism don't inform Americans about which politicians, if any, wish to establish a theocracy. But they do help Americans understand that people making the accusations are anti-Christian and anti-nationalist. 
One final accusation lobbed against Christianity came from University of California at Riverside professor Reza Aslan, a Christian apostate. The biggest sin, if you will, of Christian nationalism is that it sees pluralism as a weakness and not what it is, the foundation of what it means to be American, end quote, she insisted. Now, the whole concept of the body of Christ and the diversity within the unity, she apparently did not comprehend. Well, the irony in this inverted statement is so thick you could ice it and slice it. Not only did Aslan uh, overlook the Christian origins of American pluralism, but he also missed the fact that American Christians are still pleading for the pluralistic society, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. First Timothy 2, 2. It is totalitarian leftists who seek to depluralize American public life by banishing Christians from the public square and scaremongering about Christian nationalism is simply their latest attempt to do so. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Oregon Senate passed an anti-book ban bill over Republican objections. An increasing number of states are facing book bans for reasons that many might uh, accept. Oregon school districts would be unable to ban books simply because the authors or characters are immigrants, people of color, LGBTQ+, disabled, or from other uh, protected classes under a bill passed by Senate Democrats on Tuesday. Now, is it age inappropriate? Is it explicit? Is it sexual in nature? Well, it wouldn't matter. Senator Lou Frederick uh, described Senate Bill 1583 as a simple defense of free speech and a way to guarantee that all children in Oregon have the ability to see themselves represented in books they find in school libraries and classrooms. But it quickly became one of the most controversial issues of the five-week legislative session, with more than 1,600 Oregonians submitting written testimony about it. I want to see kids reading and getting books out of their libraries, and I lament that this bill has been politicized, Frederick said. This bill is not about politics for me. It's about kids reading, end quote. Well, that's a rather naive uh, point of view. The bill passed the Senate on a 17 to 12 party line vote on Tuesday after a heated hour long debate that included one Republican accusing his Democratic colleagues of wanting to encourage pedophilia and another saying racism is insignificant. The bill now heads to the House, where Frederick said he expects it will soon pass out of the House Rules Committee and onto the full House floor. It comes amid a sharp increase in school book bans in Oregon and nationwide. The Oregon Intellectual Freedom Clearinghouse, run by the Oregon State Library, tracked attempts to remove 93 three separate titles from the schools and libraries between July of 22 and June of 23. Nationally, the free speech and advocacy group PEN America, they reported uh, nearly 3,400 instances of book bans in 22 and 23 in the school years, up from 2,500 in the two in the previous school year. In Oregon, more than 70 percent of the challenged titles were about or written by people of color, LGBTQ plus people, women, people with disabilities and other underrepresented groups, according to the state library. Now, that's perhaps relevant, but more relevant is what is in the content of the book. What is the storyline? What are the images? What are they speaking? to young kids and most of those objections to certain literature in the public libraries have to do with material that is inappropriate sexually explicit uh, and immoral for young children it's a personal issue for frederick his sharecropper grandparents left mississippi about 
a hundred years ago because they were threatened with arrest if they continued trying to teach black children to read. Well, this debate is far removed from that. Senator Casey Jama, a Portland Democrat who came to the U.S. as a refugee from the Somali Civil War, said passing the bill sends a message to people like him and his children that their Oregonians and their culture and history matter. Well, they certainly do, but in every form that's published, Well, there was an attempt to amend the legislation. Senator Art Robinson, a Republican out of Cave Junction, rejected the premise that books are excluded for discriminatory reasons, saying no Oregon community would remove books because of the author's race. Despite claims made by uh, for political reasons, actual racism in America is insignificant. There is no community in Oregon that is going to accept removing books just because they are written by minority authors. Authors, rather. It is an insult to tell our communities that law is needed to protect this. Well, Republicans tried to introduce their own amendment to replace the bill with a new measure creating a task force that would recommend legislation to better establish standards for age-appropriate curriculum and limit books that contain graphic violence, are sexually explicit, contain vulgar language, and lack literary merit or educational value. Now, that seems reasonable to many of us, but it was rejected in the Senate. Senate Minority Leader Tim Knoop of Bend, he said the Republican amendment was necessary because Frederick's bill would eliminate parental rights and local control. Well, as mentioned, the bill will now go to the Oregon House, where it is expected to pass and the governor is expected to sign it. Well, an amended version of Senate Bill 1548, which would end the shift to daylight savings time in Oregon and keep the state permanently on standard time, advanced out of the legislative committee on Tuesday on a four to one vote. Republican Senator Tim Knope of Bend, he uh, was the only senator on the committee to vote against it. The full Senate will now vote on the amended bill, but a date for that has yet to be scheduled. And, of course, the legislature is winding down. A previous version of the bill narrowly failed to pass in the Senate last week, only to be revived by some last-minute maneuvering that allowed it to be brought up for reconsideration. The amended version includes a trigger that ties the change to neighboring states, Washington and California. The amendment states that Oregon would not change to year-round permanent standard time unless those two states did the same. If California and Washington don't pass similar bills by March of 2034, the Oregon bill would at that time be repealed. Washington and California considered similar bills this session. It died in Washington and appears stalled in California, according to the Oregonian. Back in 2019, Oregon and Washington passed bills to make daylight saving time permanent, but the bill also required California to sign on before making the switch. But that effort stalled. States also need approval from Congress or the Department of Transportation to make daylight saving time permanent. A move to permanent standard time requires no such approval. Arizona and Hawaii are the only two states in the country on year-round permanent standard time. Neither of those states observe daylight saving time. For now, the change to daylight saving time continues in Oregon starting March the 10th at 2 a.m. In other news, um, Apple is abandoning its long-running effort to develop a self-driving or autonomous electric car. On Tuesday, the tech giant announced that it was ending all work on the project and would instead focus more on developing its AI products. The move will likely lead to several hundred employees being let go. The motive behind Apple's decision likely has much to do with the EV market 
writ large. While Biden administration officials have been pushing for greater EV adoption, they have had to back off their original goals as Americans simply aren't buying in. EV makers have been cutting their production output due to sluggish sales. Serving to underscore this reality, Mercedes-Benz recently backed off its previous commitment to solely produce EVs by 2030. The company pointed to the market conditions and the lack of EV sales targets being met as the reason for that decision. All illegal immigrants from El, Basal- from El Salvador rather, have been charged with, um, I should say an illegal, not all, have been charged with uh, murder following a shootout that killed a two-year-old boy and injured a teen mom. The majority of Americans want a border wall for the first time in history. New York City's mayor says um, the city should walk back sanctuary laws. And he endorsed Hamas, Hezbollah, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Then he landed a professorship at Columbia University. Such is higher education in America today. President Biden is planning to give $850 million to a Chinese-owned battery company. And the U.S. is heading to 1970-style stagflation, J.P. Morgan's chase strategists warn. The U.S. Army is planning to slash thousands of jobs in major uh, cities to revamp their fu- for, revamp for future wars. Rather, Virginia Democrats derailed a hearing after Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears says yes, sir, to a transgender senator. Google lost $70 billion in market value after the AI chatbot disaster. And Jeopardy has embraced a woke agenda with neo-pronouns. Tennessee passed a bill allowing officials to decline performing same-sex marriages. And on this day in history, 1844 of a 12-inch gun aboard the USS Princeton exploded as the ship is sailing on the Potomac River, killing Secretary of State Abel Upshur, Navy Secretary Thomas Gilmer, and several others. 1849, the California Gold Rush begins in earnest as regular steamship service starts bringing gold seekers to San Francisco. 1911, President William Howard Tafford Uh, Taft, rather, he nominates William H. Lewis to be the first black assistant attorney general of the United States. 1917, the Associated Press reports that the United States obtained a diplomatic communication sent by German foreign minister Arthur Zimmerman to a German official in Mexico proposing a German alliance with Mexico and Japan should the U.S. enter World War I. Outrage over the telegram would help propel America into that conflict. 1942, the heavy cruiser USS Houston and the Australian light cruiser HMAS Perth are attacked by Japanese forces during the World War II Battle of Sunda Strait. 1953, scientists James D. Watson and Francis H. C. Crick announced that they have discovered the double helix structure of DNA. 1993, a gun battle erupts at a religious compound near Waco, Texas, when the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms agents try to arrest Branch Davidian leader David Koresh on weapons charges. Four agents and six Davidians are killed as a 51-day standoff begins. 1995, Denver International Airport opens after 16 months of delays and a $3.2 billion budget overrun. 2009, Paul Harvey, the news commentator and talk radio pioneer whose staccato style made him one of the nation's most familiar voices, dies in Phoenix at the age of 90. 2013, Benedict XVI, he becomes the first pope in 600 years to resign, ending an eight-year pontificate. Benedict would be succeeded the following month by Pope Francis.
Also in 2013, Bradley Manning, the Army private arrested in the biggest leak of classified information in U.S. history, pleads guilty at Fort Meade, Maryland, to 10 charges involving illegal possession or distribution of classified material. Manning, who later adopts the female identity Chelsea Manning, would be sentenced to up to 35 years in prison after being convicted of additional charges in a court-martial. His sentence would be commuted in 2017 by President Obama. 2014, delivering a blunt warning to Moscow, President Obama expresses deep concern over reported military activity inside Ukraine by Russia and warns there will be costs for any intervention. Fast forward to 2023, or rather 2022. 2018, Walmart announces that it would no longer sell firearms and ammunition to people younger than 21 and would remove items resembling assault-style rifles from its website. Dick's Sporting Goods also says it would stop selling assault-style rifles and ban the sale of all guns to anyone under 21. Also in 2018, students and teachers returned under police guard to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, as classes resumed for the first time since the shooting that killed 17. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.